Good morning. I'm glad that you uh, survived the fall ahead. In four or five months, we'll do the spring back, so we'll be back on the correct schedule. Amen. So uh, this week we had a, some kind of a holiday. This is what Lori and I had in front of our home. But I did hear a very, what I thought was excellent, um, a family told us that they celebrate Halloween by getting big candy bars and putting tracks on them, give them to the kids. We really do not celebrate Halloween, Lori and I do not. So <clears throat> Dr. Henry Morris wrote this book, the, the Long War Against God. It's a pretty good book. It will describe what has happened over the last probably 80, 70, 80 years. Thanks. And she's live, right? But Okay, you'll bring it up when this person comes up. I want to keep it kind of a mystery till this person comes up here. So I'm, I'm always kind of, what should I teach? Because I don't go to 3 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 and, and elaborate on that. So, yeah. Or founders of the creation movement. And I want to give you confidence in the scriptures. By way of introduction, to me, without some of these men and women over the years, I shudder to think what the landscape of Christianity would be. Again, I am not your typical Sunday school teacher, but I believed scripture, and I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you as Christian believers who believe the Bible is inspired of God. We believe it's inspired from the first word to the last word, and I heard a woman some, one time say, and I even think the cover is inspired. How many of you have heard of the Schofield Bible? Just a few of you. When I first became a Christian, I got one. It was the go-to Bible. It was the one you wanted because C.I. Schofield had annotated it, but you're supposed to read the Bible from the top down, not the footnotes first. Referring to Genesis 1.1, C.I. Schofield, sorry I misspelled that, states, the first creative act refers to the dateless past and gives scope to all the geologic ages. And that's right at the bottom of my Schofield Bible, which I could not lay my hands on. His proposal became known as the gap theory. Now you've got to rewind about 100 years. Scientists were bombarding us with millions of years with the fossil record and that kind of stuff, and yet there were preachers that were saying God created in six days and rested on the seventh. So they had to come up with something to agree with science. I've dealt with that in another lesson. We don't acclimate the Bible to science because science changes and God's word does not. 
It's uh, my understanding that Bob Jones Jr. believed in the gap theory because that was the time when he was taught that as he's going through his education. And there was a group of Bob Jones scientists who came to the church I was at, Marquette Manor, who were kind of embarrassed about it. And none of them believed in the gap theory, the day-age theory. So we've had a struggle over the years. And this gentleman right here is considered to be the father of creationism. And I don't even like to use that word, the creation movement, because ism gives an idea that it's a religion. Now, I met this gentleman when I was at Marquette Manor. I went to a Saturday seminar. He spoke. I even asked him a question. I said, because um, he had mentioned, you really can't study the creation of the world as a scientist because it takes an observer. And then I, I asked, how come we're using science to argue the different things about creation? And he said, because most of the attacks on the word of God is because of what scientists say. And that's why I, as a scientist, am doing what I'm doing. Now, do you remember that gentleman I quoted last week? If kids don't know that dinosaurs became extinct 75 million years ago, they will flunk my class. This is what he said. And by the way, I know you backpedal and softpedal sometimes when you're around people because you don't want to be obnoxious and ornery. These creationist PhDs are mostly unlearned with fake or honorary degrees. He was also a chemistry teacher, so he taught biology and chemistry. And I just want to use that as kind of a backdrop for Henry Morris. I don't know if you know anything about him or if you've read any of his books or seen any of his videos, but he has a BS in civil engineering from Rice University. Would you call that a fake degree? He has a master's in hydraulic engineering from Minnesota. Would you call that a fake degree, a fake university? By the way, for those of you that don't know, bachelor's degree, usually four years. Master's degree, one or two years, right? He has a PhD in hydraulic engineering from Minnesota. PhD, you can count on four or five years, right? We know that that's just a fake degree. By the way, there was supposed to be sound there. Did you want to turn the sound back on? <laughs> I know we get feedback. Thank you. <laughs> that makes it more interesting, doesn't it? And he became the department chair at Virginia Tech. Those are pretty impressive credentials. It's not a fake degree. In 1963, Dr. Morris and nine other earth, young earth creationists, we are called yaks, young earth creationists, including Gish, uh, founded the Creation Research Society, and I have some of their original magazines back at that time, and I can't put my hands on it. I don't know where they're at. 
He resigned from his post at Virginia Tech in 1969 and 1970, founded the Institute for Creation Research. This is my go-to website, icr.org. He wrote more than 60 books on topics that include creation science, evolution, and Christian apologetics. And here are a list of the books that he's written. Pretty impressive, huh? Not done. Early in my Christian life, I got a hold of his, his book, Evolution in the Modern Christian. And for several years at Marquette Manor, I used that book to teach a chapter, a unit for my physical science classes that I taught up there. Interestingly enough, I went to icr.org and I started, I did a search of Henry Morris and I gave up after 1,291 citations of the things he had written, I gave up and just said I'm going to circle that and go on. I don't know how many he's written. I really don't. And that's an excellent website, icr.org. It tends to be PhDs in their fields, writing, doing research, lecturing, and so on. Participated in over 100 debates, many times with Gish. He resigned from the Institute for Creation Research in 1996. Became president emeritus and wrote and lectured until his passing to glory. in 2006. I didn't know him that well. But I shed tears that day. I could put my name here too. Dr. Morris is one of my heroes of the faith he is the man of the Lord raised up as the father of the modern creationist movement. This is certainly the end of an era in the history of creationism, Christendom. And here he is. One plus one plus one doesn't make one. You say you believe in one God, yet you have three gods. How can that be? Well, we don't believe in three different gods. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each is equally eternal and omnipotent and omniscient. Each is God. Well, that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? <laughs> well, maybe not human sense. It makes divine sense. And isn't it significant that the universe which God created is a tri-universe of space and matter and time, period, nothing else. Everything is space, matter, time. Tri-unity, and it's not as though part of the universe is space and another part is time, another part is energy or matter. All of it is space, all of it is time, all of it, everywhere in space and time occur these phenomena of matter and energy. And so the universe is a tri-universe which reflects exactly the character of God is revealed in the, in the scriptures. Each is the whole, yet each is necessary for the whole. And then the three in the tri-universe. And each of these three is also a trinity, if you notice. Space is three-dimensional, length, width, and height. 
Uh, all this stuff about 10 dimensions and so on that some people advocate, that's not in the real world we're talking about. That's mathematical manipulations on a computer or something. But in the real world, we have three dimensions, space, length, and height. That's the world we live in. Space is always identified in terms of the first dimension. That is the foot or the meter or the mile. But now if I say I draw a line on a blackboard and I say, this represents one dimension, uh, no, it, if you can see it, it has two dimensions because you can only see space in the second dimension. But we live in a world of three dimensions. So note again, space is always identified in the first dimension, seen in the second dimension, experienced in the third dimension. And as in the other case, all you have to do is substitute father, son, and spirit for first, second, and third. Exactly the same sentence will work. Space is the invisible, omnipresent background of all things, manifest to our senses always and everywhere in phenomena of matter and energy, which are then interpreted and experienced through time. And again, substitute father, son, and spirit, and the same sentence will apply. And time is future, present, and past. Future is the unseen source of all time, manifest moment by moment in the present, experience in the past. And again, you can substitute father, son, and spirit. And then the phenomena of matter and energy, which occur <laughs> everywhere, always, follow a triune format too. Everywhere we have unseen energy in different forms, but unseen energy, you don't see energy, you see the result of it. Energy is manifested in motion. So we talk about the velocity of light and the velocity of sound and so forth. Going through space and time. I think you can see and understand this man is brilliant. So I would always look in my acts and facts to see where some of these gentlemen would be speaking. He came to Purdue in the 1980s, toward the end of the 1980s. And I mentioned it in my classes at Jeff, and one student said, sure, I'll go with you. Now, why do I remember Lewis Maiden from 1989 or whatever, but I can't remember Marty Cotterman's first last name. <laughs> but Lewis Maiden went with me. We're sitting in the back of the Chem 200 lecture hall. How many have been in there, Chem 200? Gigantic, 600 seats, lower level, upper level, balcony. We're sitting up in the top row. I said, Lewis, you want to meet uh, Dr. Morris? I said, sure. We went down, talked to him for five minutes, wearing the same crumpled suit, and I think the same tie class that he's had all his life. And you're thinking, you know, who is this guy? Humble, brilliant. We went back to our seats, and I go, what do you think? He goes, wow, he's really pretty cool. I mean, here's a PhD, a brilliant man. He wrote the Genesis Flood in 1961. I have a copy of that book. I wish I would gotten him to autograph it. I don't think I did. Oh, there it is, Dan Clark. <laughs> so right there on the front of the book, Henry Morris. And again, I mentioned the acts and facts. You can get, not this magazine, but you can get the electronic version by going to icr.org and signing up. I get that every week. You will find some fantastic articles. You say, I'm not interested in science, all the way from really technical stuff to very simple stuff. And I have these magazines back to the, to the uh, 70s, although they were just just a little uh, pamphlet and there are a couple of the other articles now uh, Jesse this is for you come on down please 
you're going to put on safety specs. I understand in physical, in physical science, you're studying chemistry, right? And one of the things, you, you usually can put the shields right over your glasses. Yeah, very good. All right. And this is very something very simple, something you could do at home. We'll need a couple of uh, spatulas full, spatulas, <laughs> of this. Um, does anyone know what baking soda is? Sodium bicarbonate. So a couple of those in one of the beakers there. I took that right out of the fridge this morning, so it might have some cabbage juice in it. Very good. Yeah, a couple. All right, very good. Now, I understand you're studying chemical reactions, and you know the four evidences of a chemical reaction? Which one are we going to demonstrate today, do you know? There, there might be a temperature change. It might be a temperature change. So we're going to need uh, 75 milliliters of that in that beaker there. Do you know what 75 milliliters is? I don't either. It's on the side of the beaker there. Okay, that's good. Very good. All right. Now, pour one into the other. I'll let you choose which goes into which. Okay, now, it might be a little difficult for you to tell there's a, a temperature change because you're probably not going to want to put your hand in there. But what is that evidence of a chemical change? And your dad said that to me the other night. And I said, I say, we say the production of a gas. Because you could take soap bubbles, right, and boom, the bubbles there is not a chemical change. The only way to tell whether a chemical reaction has occurred, do you know? You analyze the reactants and the products. If they are different, then chemical change has taken place. Very good, thank you. I need the goggles back. <laughs> I'm going to ask my lovely assistant if she would put all this stuff on the lower shelf for me while I'm talking about the reaction. So a chemist wants to write a balanced chemical equation. This is sodium bicarbonate, NaHCO3 plus the active ingredient in vinegar is acetic acid, HC2H3O2, and it forms carbon dioxide, the bad guy, water, and salt. Why do I say the bad guy? Because it's getting bad press right now. Why don't we eliminate all carbon dioxide from the atmosphere? Sounds like a good idea? Let's do that. Bad idea. Why? Plants, plants require it. That's a brilliant creator, isn't he? He wrote it with John Whitcomb, an Old Testament scholar. First time I heard this, I go, a scientist with a theologian? Okay. Even Stephen Jay Gould called uh, Morris the founding document, or the Genesis flood, the founding document, and uh, Morris as the uh, creator of the creationist movement. 
And they use science and biblical data together in that book, The Genesis Flood. I remember I was introducing the Bob Jones group, and I said, some of you need to get The Genesis Flood. It's very difficult. It's complicated. You'll have to wade through it. Boy, a tough crowd, Laurie. <laughs> so he wrote it with John Whitcomb, and there are the, the, the dates of his life. John Whitcomb has a, you know, a BAS, Bachelor of Arts, from Princeton with high honors. That's his fake degree. You know what a BD is? Bachelor of Divinity from Grace, and then his Masters of Divinity from, or Theology, and then a Doctors of Theology from Grace. All, oh, we lost our sound again. All fake degrees, right? All just fake. Just, it's just a scam. Whitcomb served as a professor at Grace Theological Seminary from 1951 to 1990. When Morris went there to speak, Whitcomb listened. He was a gap theorist. He changed his mind. He changed his heart. Dan, can you explain the gap theory? I'm not... Between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, God created, and then millions of years are shoved in there between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, and then God picked up his creation again. Yes? Cool. Dr. Weston Fields, he wrote uh, Unformed and Unfilled, and it was his refutation of the, the gap theory. Very good. So I would say he was probably outstanding in his field. <laughs> so there's uh, John Whitcomb's name. You didn't think I'd let that uh, the missing ink just slide, did you? No. So here's some of the books that he wrote. I like this quote. His life and ministry may be summed up in this quotation. I want to be in the full-time business of finding out what God says and telling as many people as I can. There's his picture. And as soon as I saw that picture, I went, Princeton University. <laughs> Does that look like Princeton in the 40s or 50s? There's an excellent inter interview with Dr. Whitcomb. Half-born Christians, there's the link. And I remind you, you can email me. I'll send you these links. I include them in my presentations so that I'll have them. Genesis was written. It tells us about dinosaurs. What, what book was that? Job. Yes, Job 40. Behold, behemoth, God said to Job. He has a tail as big as a what? A cedar tree. He's no hippopotamus or elephant. They flunk on the tail measurement. Now think of it, a tail as big as a cedar tree. And Job, I'm going to tell you where to find him too. He's in that amazing river over there called the Jordan. And there he sits. And every time that Jordan overflows its banks in the springtime and the flood season, he, he doesn't flee like the little animals did, including lions that terrified. He, he just lifted up his head and 
the vegetation flowed in and he was a master of the Jordan. So after I watched that video, I thought about this question that I gave you last week. And I'm not happy with the answer I gave you. So I did some research. This is a correction, right? I did some research on it. I went to ICR. I went to a number of places. And to be honest, <laughs> I got more confused. Apparently, the clean animals, the clean animals, bulls, rams, doves, pigeons, sheep, goats. So is it seven? Is it two? Did it mostly take two or seven or what? So what I've done is I've, I've submitted this question to the Department of Justice, the Federal Bureau of Intimidation, and they said as soon as they're done investigating all the people who were in Washington the week of January 6th, and when they're done investigating all the parents who have gone to school board meetings to complain about the theories that are being taught and the different uh, things going on in libraries, after they've checked all those out, then they're going to investigate that question. <laughs> yeah, if sarcasm was an Olympic sport, I'd have a gold medal, wouldn't I? <laughs> so, of course, he taught theology. This is an excellent to my way of thinking, what scripture says about the uh, second coming. Now, I have what I, what I think, I, can't, I just couldn't believe this. Because we have, to me, an incredible treat. We have somebody who knows, or who knew, John Whitcomb. Did you know that? We have somebody in our church that does. And I've asked Gary to come and answer some questions for us. <laughs> I mean, my, my knowledge of, personal knowledge of Henry Morris is quite small compared to actually knowing him. So, um, how, how did you meet or how did you know Dr. Whitcomb? He'll turn it on. Well, um, to begin with, let me say that uh, uh, Dr. Whitcomb would not be real happy with us talking about Dr. Whitcomb today. What he would be most happy about is if we were talking about what the Lord Jesus Christ had done for him and through him. He stated that many, many times. But the answer to your question was uh, we got saved in 77 and have Shortly after that, we uh, moved to Warsaw. Actually, Jenny became uh, friends with his wife, Norma, uh, first. Uh, somehow or another, she got me involved, and we helped him move or something. I, my first memory is sitting around in an empty room, sitting around on the floor, uh, eating Chinese food with them after we'd cleaned the house that they were getting ready to move out of. Later on, uh, I had the opportunity uh, to be director of facilities at Grace Schools. And of course, Dr. Whitcomb was there and um, was teaching. Uh, I had the opportunity also because uh, I was employed by the school system. Uh, I was tuition free. So I took some classes uh, towards a biblical certificate. 
And I remember um, many times sitting in Dr. Richton's classes. Uh, one of them, I, I just got to share with you, um, was God and Revelation. Uh, it's a pretty heavy course, but Dr. Richton had the ability to just bring very complicated issues right down where you could understand it. Where he, he taught, even though he couldn't teach very uh, at a high level, he, he would teach at a level uh, where his audience was. And uh, so I, after the first session, uh, I, was, uh, I, was, I was hooked. Uh, second session, we came in, and I'm supposed to be taking notes. Finally, because of the way he was speaking and what and the things he was saying, and, and with great interest, I just laid my pencil down and listened for the rest of the semester. Obviously, I didn't do well on the test. <laughs> but that wasn't my, wasn't my goal. Eventually, uh, they moved to uh, Florida for a little while. Actually, Jenny flew down or went down there with them, helped them move in, and uh, then they flew her back. And then a few years later, they were there, I think they were all in Florida, maybe three or four years. I don't remember exactly how long. Uh, they came back from Florida, and um, they didn't have a house, they didn't have a place to stay, so they moved in. They came and lived with us for several months. Uh, upstairs, we just dedicated a couple rooms and a bathroom for them, and, and uh, they lived there for with us for a little while. And then uh, we moved away, they moved away, they got a house, and uh, eventually we ended up back in Warsaw again, at my retirement, and uh, Norma and Jack, uh, excuse me, Dr. Whitcomb uh, invited us to go to church with them, which was uh, Lakeland Conservative Grace Brethren Church, which they were charter members of. And so we went, even though they were living in Warsaw, they were in Warsaw at that time. So we ended up going there, and uh, that was where we took our membership and attended throughout the years. And then uh, the other thing that is important to, to know about Dr. Whitcomb is he was specifically uh, interested in people. Not only what the Lord had to say, not only the theology, but he was genuinely interested in other people and, and what they were doing for the Lord especially, and uh, about every two weeks or so, even though they had, their home was in Indianapolis now from about uh, 2008 to, to his death, they, um, about every two weeks he would, call, he would either call me or every three or four months we'd go down and visit with them uh, for a little while. And um, one of the things that you can always count on when you go to see Dr. visit Dr. Whitcomb was that you were going to go out for lunch and you was going to go to a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason for that. Um, although he was born in Washington, D.C., his father was uh, a very high-ranking Army official, 
and um, they had went, gone in, and, and during his childhood and moved to China. And he was actually raised by a nanny in China, uh, rather than, actually rather than his mother, this Chinese nanny uh, raised him. And so he was very uh, uh, prone to uh, the, the Chinese culture. And so he always liked the Chinese food as well. An interesting fact, uh, whenever we would go to Chinese restaurants, he always would have tracks in Chinese. And he always would give them to the kitchen help. And he always would want to meet them, sit and speak to them for a minute, give them tracks, and, and go on. So we spent, uh, I don't know how many, days and hours uh, with them uh, conversing about just life in general. Cool. Thank you very much. That's it. Thanks. No, I don't have to ask any of these questions that I had here. <laughs> so let's... Uh, that's that's Gary Fouts and his wife Jenny. So, what do you think? Uh, well, I don't know if people don't get it or which is better. <laughs> you do know what a group of of uh, crows are called? Murder. Okay, Dwayne Gish. I never had the pleasure of meeting this gentleman. I, I would I would look at the acts and facts and see what speakers, you know, if they were within 100 miles, I'd go hear him. He, he never got to the Midwest that I knew about. So he's got a bachelor's in science from UCLA, another quack school. He's got a PhD in biochemistry from Berkeley, another quack school. You know, another fake degree. Assistant professor at Cornell. Some of the books that he's written. Ladies and gentlemen, three or four centuries ago, the notion that the sun and other planets revolved around the earth was the dogma of the scientific establishment. And Galileo faced determined opposition from fellow astronomers when he suggested otherwise. Louis Pasteur and others about a century ago overturned the established dogma of centuries when they showed that living things never arise spontaneously from dead matter. Today, even though thousands of scientists are creationists and the number is growing rapidly, the notion of evolution remains a stifling dogma. Evolutionists seek to smother all challenges from within or without the scientific and educational establishments, concealing the fallacies and weaknesses of the theory and adamantly opposing a hearing for the scientific... And again... Let's look at the fossil record and see what the fossil record produces. Does it produce these intermediate forms demanded by the theory of evolution? Or do we find that the gaps in the fossil record are systematic? That is... We do not find at any level any intermediate forms. We should expect the phyla, the classes, 
the orders, families, down to including the general at least, each would appear fully formed, would know transitional form. Now we want to look at first at creatures that are found in so-called Cambrian rocks. Now he was the one that would do the debates and scientists would debate him until after four or five years they'd find out this guy's going to stomp you. Do not debate him. And so those debates stopped. So I must move on and I'm sorry we have to have ads like this. My apologies to those of you who were not here last Sunday to hear the message. The message was on eyesight. There is a reverential discount. And the first 500 gets special bonus glasses. Now, Lori and I have, have done this. We've got my <laughs> we've got my large print Bible. I'm going to go to uh, the bell and the dragon. <laughs> but if you act now, if you act now, yeah, here we go. You get special glasses to help you in your reading. All right. So, I'm not sure which glasses you will get. You may get glasses like this. I, I watched Star Trek. I was a Trekkie. I, I love that. In the 60s, it was like cutting edge. You know, Captain Jerk and Mr. Lulu and those guys would go down, beam down to the planet. If I was a crew member and they said, hey, you want to go down to the planet with us? And it's not one you recognize? I say, no, I'll be dead by the first commercial. <laughs> so this is Geordi, and he's supposed to be blind, and he can see through, okay. Jonathan Safadi. Creationists often appeal to the facts of science to support their view, and evolutionists often appeal to philosophical assumptions from outside of science. You check. They do. So he's got a bachelor's in science with honors from Victoria University. This doesn't sound like it's America, does it? A PhD in spectroscopy. That's a chemistry field. Again, fake degrees. This guy is brilliant, too. Just absolutely brilliant. He works with the Creation Science Foundation. The ministry's there. He's authored many books and articles. He lectures around the world. And he can play blindfolded with chess up to 12 people. Yes. <laughs> Incredible. He came to a church on the west side. I met him. Listened to his morning uh, 
message, and I think it came on a Saturday. Listened to him for a couple hours. Refuting Evolution was my first book, and I think it became it was quite popular uh, with half a million sales uh, uh, copies sold now because it was a response to the National Academy of Sciences uh, teacher's guidebook called Teaching About Evolution and the Nature of Science, which was given to all the high schools uh, across America to try to indoctrinate kids into evolution uh, with their latest and greatest evidence, um, even though it had... This is the book I was reading one night, and I go, Laurie, <laughs> I handed her the book, and there's my name and a paragraph about me in his book. Now, not to brag or anything, you know, but I have, I have defeated 20 blindfolded chess players. <laughs> so, you know, he's got his 12, I got my 20. Now, the nice... The nice thing about PowerPoint, you can make quick changes, right? Uh, the bad thing about PowerPoint is you wake up at 3.30 in the morning and you go, what did I do for the kids today? You know, there are kids here. So for the kids, just for the kids, and for kids I would say anybody under 70, you can answer these questions. I'm going to ask my lovely assistant to make the final determination on who gets one of these books down here. By the way, I have a bunch of Acts and Facts magazines in the back there on the table. If you want to borrow them, you can borrow them. Please don't take them. All right? They're, they're not replaceable. So, kids, are you ready? My lovely assistant is going to decide who gets the prize or who answers the most or who does the best job on these questions. Question number one. What kind of lights did Noah use on the ark? Nobody? I don't know, Laurie. We may just have to flip a coin. That's who's going to get these prizes up here. By the way, we personally know somebody who did the electrical work on, on the ark that's in Kentucky. He was a former student of mine, not a Christian at the time. Well, he put in floodlights. <laughs> what animal could Noah not trust? Who said that? That is, that's good. That's not the one I was thinking of, but that. <laughs> yes. Yes, the cheetah. <laughs> Who is the only person in the Bible without parents? <laughs> yes, Joshua, the son of Nun. And he qualifies, he's under 70, <laughs> just by a few months. How long did Cain hate his brother? What? Somebody have it? What did you say? As long as he was able. When was the first mention of foreign cars in the Bible? Yes, Acts chapter 2. The, the disciples were all in one accord. <laughs> 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 
What did Adam say on the day before Christmas? Yes, it's getting close to Christmas, Eve. (laughs) Uh, Okay, those questions are not going to be on your test. <laughs> so we had the privilege of uh, Ken Ham came to our church when we were at Faith, and he he spoke on the Sunday Sunday morning and Sunday evening, and three or four weeks up to that time, I gave messages in the evening, Sunday evening, and that Sunday he was there. Uh, Lori and I took. Ken and his wife out for, you remember Ryan's Steakhouse? Yeah, that's where we took him. <laughs> He's got a BS in Applied Science from Queensland's Institute of Technology. He has a Diploma of Education from the University of Queensland. His idea was to become a teacher. He has four honorary doctorates. Now those, you know, we had a teacher at Jeff who was very strong in evolution and doing all this stuff. He got an honorary PhD from Wabash and the kids were required to call him doctor from that point on. (laughs) To me, whatever. So Ken has written a number of books. Those are fake degrees. He started as a teacher in Dalby State High School in Australia. He came to ICR, I did not realize this, in 1987. Thus, the effect that that Morris had on him. Started Answers in Genesis in 1994. The Creation Museum in 2007. How many have been to the Creation Museum? How many have been to the Ark Encounter? Both are fantastic. Here's the books he's written. and numerous, many, many, many articles. Word apologetics, 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give an answer or give a reason. And the word answer or, or reason comes from, or defense even, comes from the word apologia, from which we get a word apologetics. It means to give a logical reason defense of the faith. And so the Creation Museum is really a walk through the Bible, what we call the seven seas of history, answering skeptical questions of this age that cause people to doubt that you can trust the Bible. In fact, the first four C's are the uh, geological, biological, astronomical, anthropological history that the world says is not true. And sadly, a lot of the church says we don't need to believe it. But if that history is not true, then how can the gospel based in that history be true? What about all of our doctrines, like the doctrine of marriage based in that history? And so the Creation Museum and the Ark are apologetics facilities. What we're doing is we're giving you a defense or giving you an answer. We're answering questions uh, as you go through and look at what the Bible teaches about the history of the world and the gospel based in that history. And at the Ark, as you go through the Ark, we have answers to all sorts of questions that, that people have. You know, it's interesting. I've traveled around the world for the past 40 years. And no matter what country I've gone to, even third world countries, when they hear that you're on about the Bible and Christianity, they ask the same basic questions. You believe the Bible? Wait a minute, we live in a scientific age. Science has disproved the Bible. 
How can you believe the Bible? There's no evidence for a flood. How could Noah get the animals on the ark anyway? Well, how do you explain all the races of people and, and black people and white people? Well, there are no black or white people and there are no races, by the way. There's only one race. Uh, we'll mention that a little later on. And, and what about dinosaurs? Didn't they live millions of years ago? And doesn't that disprove the Bible? Doesn't carbon-14 disprove the Bible? How do you know there's a God anyway? Well, where did God come from? And wait, well, wait a minute, science, science in this age has proved that, that the Big Bang is true and, and that we evolved from ape-like creatures. How can you believe the Bible? Who's heard questions something like that? You heard those? Yes, we have. But you know, the problem is a lot of people don't know how to give that defense or give that answer. And so today's session, what I want to do is go through quickly and just give you an overview, and that's all it's going to be, an overview, so we don't go into a lot of... So, Laurie, I'm putting pressure on you. Who, who gets the free book down here? Okay, come on down. On the second shelf here, there's a book for you. Okay. Then finally, that was simple, take the top one. <laughs> I am so thankful that early in my Christian life, I met men and women who loved the Lord, who stood for the absolute accuracy of the word and who had a profound influence and effect on my life. Thank you. 